Welcome to Jersey Justice, a civil law podcast that shares practical tips and stories about personal and workplace injuries. Join two of the brightest New Jersey injury attorneys, Gerald Clark and Mark Morris of Clark Law Firm, as they take you behind the scenes of justice and civil law. But first, a quick disclaimer. The information shared on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this site should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Jersey Justice. And today we're going to be talking about understanding expert witnesses and the art of the testimony. So welcome back, Mark and Jerry. I feel like I haven't seen you guys in a while, but you know what? It was just a little bit ago. And we're going to be talking about expert witnesses, which is a huge part when it comes to personal injury cases and workplace injury cases. All right, we're going to go over to Mark first, and I want to know from him, you know, what is the importance of understanding the type of expert witnesses to use in particular cases, and what are some of the things we're going to be covering in this episode today, Mark? Dimple, thanks. Good to see you. You're right. I think it kind of has been a little bit. So not every case needs an expert witness, but a lot of the times when we do go out and get an expert witness, the, the standard in the law is that it's when there's subject matter that's beyond the kin of an average juror. I don't know why they use that terminology. Again, I think it's K-E-N. It's pronounced like kin, but it's like Ken, like the Ken doll from Barbie. And usually if I explain to a client or, you know, why we need an expert is, you know, if someone goes and breaks a bone, I can stand up there and I can say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this client has a broken bone. I'm not qualified to do that. I need somebody who is an expert in the field of, in that case, if it's a broken bone, orthopedics, most likely to talk about that injury. And so the standard in New Jersey is pretty, pretty broad. It's pretty awesome, actually. You can be an expert through training without practice or through practice without training. And kind of my understanding of, of how that plays out is I've had times where I have an orthopedic surgeon that ends up talking about a plastic surgery issue and the defense gets up and objects and says, how, you know, how can he talk about that? He's not a plastic surgeon. And although he doesn't practice in plastic surgery, he can testify that he had training in medical school during his residency where he was exposed to plastic surgery. And a lot of times that will get you over the bar in, in New Jersey. But so most of the time in cases to be a witness, to go in and testify, you have to have firsthand knowledge. You have to have actually perceived an event. You have to have, you know, either saw, smelled, heard, whatever. It's not just going to be any old person that can come in and testify. But with experts, they don't have to have firsthand knowledge. They can rely on materials that people typically rely on in their field. They can rely on hearsay, which, you know, if you don't know much about law, you probably at least know the term hearsay. And medical experts can rely on hearsay to form their opinions. So, there's no kind of hard and fast rule when we get an expert. Most of the time for damages, what the injury is, we'll get an expert, especially if it's a verbal threshold case, because there's certain, I guess, hurdles we have to get over that we usually would use an expert for. But so for damages more often and then liability, it has to be a specific type of case where we'd, we'd go out and get a liability expert. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I'm going to go over to Jerry and I want to know from him, you know, what are some of the things that you're going to be sharing today on this episode? And why is it so important to understand, 
you know, the different types of expert witnesses and how to even pick the right one for the case. Yeah, thanks, Dimple. Yeah, so when we have like a personal injury case, you know, a lot of times it, like Mark said, it involves areas that might be complicated, you know, and the and the jury has to make certain decisions like kind of Mark talked about is how bad is the injury? And in an injury case, if you want to prove that the injury is permanent, <clears throat> usually you need an expert, a medical expert. So if someone hurt their spine, for example, and it's a herniated disc or something wrong with the disc, you can't just rely on like, you know, a lawyer or the witness, the client or the client's family or something to say yes. And the injury to the spine is permanent. You, you know, for something like that, you would need a medical expert. And also, whenever you have a personal injury case, like, and <clears throat> the defendants are almost always represented by insurance companies. So it's a whole industry, defending cases, collecting insurance premiums. And generally speaking, insurance companies don't want to pay out claims. They want to pay out as little as possible. They want to collect their premiums, you know, which is what you pay every month for your insurance. They want to collect that money, but they don't want to pay out claims. So they have this whole system set up to prevent doing that. As far as doctors go, the insurance company has a whole menu of doctors. You know, in kind of relatively recent years, the medical field has gotten more difficult for doctors. You know, it's harder because they have to fight the, you know, Medicare or fight the insurance company and, and to get paid and the rates could, are, are less. And there's so many problems in that regard where doctors, generally speaking, are making less money. So to get on a list of an insurance company where they testify in court for defendants in insurance cases, that can be more lucrative and simple. So these insurance companies have so much money and, and they have a whole list of doctors at their disposal. And so a plaintiff in a case also, if you bring a case, you have to prove that the injury you're claiming at trial was caused by what you're suing for. So if it's car crash, you have to prove that the injury is permanent in a lot of cases, and you have to prove that the injury is from the car crash. So these insurance companies have all these doctors at their disposal that pretty much in every case that we've seen will minimize the injury, will say the injury is not from the crash. So for example, if you have a spinal injury, we've seen it in cases you know, where in New Jersey, we've seen cases where the plaintiff could be like 12 years old or 14 years old or something, and they get in a car crash and have a spine injury. And the insurance doctor will get up in front of a jury or write a report and say that it's a pre-existing injury, meaning the injury to the spine is from God knows what, but it's not from the crash. And therefore, you shouldn't award any money. And they also do it in people that are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And you can be darn sure they're going to say that in people that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that the injury to the spine is not from the case. So it's funny, you know, because people have their, their idea of court and civil justice and the system, but behind it, there is a whole industry. <laughs> there are uh, expert companies that, that service the insurance industry that have experts at their disposal. What does this mean as a practical matter? If you're in a car crash and, you know, you have the burden of proving the case, you have the burden of proving you were injured from the crash and that it was caused by the crash and that it's permanent. So during the case, they're going to send you to a defense medical exam, which is where you have to go to the office of the doctor for the insurance company. And inevitably, you know, so then they're going to examine you and they're almost always going to write a report that downplays the injury, 
that says, for example, the injury is not from the crash. And if they have an injury that, that they can't with a straight face or without looking totally ridiculous. Now, often they'll give totally ridiculous testimony. It's not a problem for them because they're going to get paid. A lot of these doctors make six, seven figures a year are paid by insurance companies to testify in court. So they often say stuff that's completely ridiculous, but it, it because it doesn't matter because they're still going to get paid a lot of money for doing it. They'll say for their time for doing it, but it's a little bit of splitting, splitting hairs. So, uh, yeah, so they're going to come to court and they're going to say that the injury is, is not from the crash, downplay the injury. And, and we, we see it so much when we talk about expert witnesses and, and experts, we, we could, I could, we could go on for days about it. So that's just one little example of how it works. Yeah. And Dimple, if I could kind of jump in, like Jerry said, the defense reports, it gets to a point where like, we feel like we could write them. It's almost always it's pre-existing, it's degenerative, it's not related to the crash, whatever the injury may be. And if you do have a bad injury, a lot of the times the defense doctor, they can't even say with a straight face, oh, that is pre-existing degenerative. They'll say that the subjective complaints of pain don't match up with the objective findings, which is just a couple fancy words or a few fancy words to say the person's lying or faking their injury. And it's, you know, we've talked about it. I could probably count on one hand and the amount of zero of clients that I've had where they're faking or malingering or what, but that's almost, that's, that's a defense in these cases. And a lot of times too, the defense doctor will have spent 20 minutes or less with the client or with our client to do, you know, a history, review the medical records, perform a physical examination, and then they send them out the door. They testify a trial. They wouldn't be able to recognize the person on the street. You know, they, again, spent less than 15, 20 minutes with them. And again, pre-existing degenerative, or if they're not saying that, then they're saying they're faking, exaggerating or what. So a lot of times it turns into a battle of the experts. When the injury is so bad that they can't, they can't contest. So like if there was a broken bone, like a fractured bone in the car crash, they'll say, yes, they had a broken bone. And then they're going to say they were treated appropriately and had an excellent result. So even if there's a broken bone with surgery, they're going to say there's no residuals. They've had a broken bone. It was a temporary injury. And now they're fine. They say it in almost every case. And as Mark was alluding to, they will frequently, probably more than 60, 70 percent of the cases. See, if the defense attorney gets up in trial and tells the and tells the jury that the plaintiff's a liar, they're a malingerer, they're a fraud, that's a little too edgy. And the defense attorney will be concerned that it will backfire and they'll start to feel bad for the injured person. So the way they do it that we've seen it is they float it, they suggest it. And they'll say, you know, so like Mark said, the doctor will say, yes, the objective signs of injury do not match the subjective complaints. Basically, they're saying that they are a liar. And if you come to court or you testify in a deposition that, yes, I have these injuries, this is what happened to me in the crash. And then the doctor the doctor gets on the stand and says, those injuries are not from this crash and they don't have the injuries they're saying, they're calling them a liar. And if a person lies to win money in a lawsuit, they're cheating. And if they lie to win money in a lawsuit or to get a compensation in a lawsuit, that's against the law. It's actually a crime. So they're a fraud. So when these doctors and they do it in, I would estimate more than 70% of the cases we've seen, we've had people get fusion surgeries. We've had young young people get bad injuries. And the doctor 
will go to the, the defense medical exam and they will say the subjective complaints don't match the objective injury. When they say objective, they mean it doesn't match the MRI or it doesn't match the X-ray or it doesn't match like an EMG test. And what they're clearly saying without calling them a liar, cheating, a fraud is they're saying they are a liar, cheating, a fraud by saying they're they're exaggerating. It's kind of like the doctors and the defense attorneys in, in these cases. They're just they're just sort of like tapping into the worst in people. They're tapping into the worst in humanity. They're probably lying and they're tapping into those kind of predispositions with jurors. So, you know, in America, the this, this system's not perfect. You have people that are guilty are found innocent and you have people that are innocent and found guilty. And you very, very, very often because of the money and the power that these insurance and big corporations have that defend these cases, they win these lawsuits and people get nothing that are severely injured through no fault of their own because jurors actually believe these doctors with these Yale degrees or big time medical degrees, getting up there, basically calling the plaintiff a malinger. And if you get the reports, we've done this too from time to time. If you subpoena and fight them and get their reports, say that they wrote in the last two years in, in injury cases, you'll find the reports will say essentially the same thing in every case. And they'll often use like the same wording. So in many ways, it can be like a racket. Yeah, Jared, Dimple, if I could just- Am I sounding too cynical here? I'm sorry, should I? No, I mean- you've, <laughs> Or am I just doing telling it like it is? <laughs> you've been doing it long enough to be cynical about it. <laughs> I'm cynical, and you know. I think actually today's my eighth year anniversary. I remember, and you asked me this in another podcast, Dimple, like, why'd you become a lawyer? And I remember when I was, why'd you become a lawyer? And like, what, when I, I remember when I was a defense lawyer, I would get these cases thrown out or I would take these depositions and I would just feel like I needed to take a shower after it because I was like, geez, I just didn't feel too good because, you know, so when you have this kind of situation where you have a person that's legit injured <laughs> through no fault, you know, rammed in the rear in a car crash or something, and then you have these highly qualified medical doctors that are sick of fighting insurance companies for treating patients, and then they decide to become a professional testifier, and jurors believe it. It's like another another plaintiff's case down the tube, and another person was cheated out of a recovery. It can make you cynical in, in some ways. So, yeah. Dimple, I just got to add on to that. You know, door number one is pre-existing, degenerative, not related to the crash. Door number two is subjective complaints don't match objective, you know, evidence, aka they're a liar, cheater, malingerer, fraud. And then door number three is yes, they were really hurt. Yes, all the scans show they were hurt, but they made an excellent recovery. Like they're doing great. And I'm gonna beat Jerry to it unless he's ready to do it. But we tried a case where a young guy got his leg snapped in half, and the way the bone healed, it healed on top of each other. I think it's called an a bayoneted fashion it healed like that and the defense doctor's testimony was that oh he made an excellent recovery and jerry held up the m the x-ray of the films where the bone is literally healed on top of the bone he's like oh well that you, you know that can happen that's okay that's now, you know he, he didn't say it can happen it was it, he said i remember it was like you just said it was like this and he called it i'll never forget it it's in perfect anatomical alignment and yeah. you had one part of the bone over and and see perfect analytical that's why that's like what I was saying, how they can say stuff that's completely ridiculous, but it doesn't stop them. I mean, it was completely deformed. It was obvious and perfect anatomical alignment. So, yeah. So, Dimple, the, 
the reason the defense use these doctors over and over and they get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not, you know, million, millions of dollars to testify is because they present well. They do. Like it's like Jerry said, it's a game. And the jury just sees this guy who's got a, a great degree and, you know, a long history of working in the field and he presents well at trial. But at the end of the day, they're always they're for the most part almost always saying the same thing. And I've had I had a case. Remember, I tried it. I tried it with another attorney, and we were doing our due diligence on the defense doctor. And the defense doctor had gone to medical school in Mexico, which it happens. I know a lot of people go to school abroad for medical school, but so this defense doctor had gone to school in Mexico, and we asked him what language were the classes classes taught in, and he said Spanish. Said, doctor, do you speak Spanish? No. How did you take the exams? Well, I I just tried my best. So this guy had gone to a medical school in Mexico. There were classes were taught in Spanish, and he didn't speak Spanish. He got his med- medical degree. And I think at the time it had been like decades since he had treated patients. But again, the jurors just see this doctor who presents well. If we beat him up too much, oh poor doctor. So it's it's a fine line where. Like Jerry and I have been talking, you can tell how animated we are. We see the game time in and time out. A lot of times for the jurors, that's the only exposure they're getting to seeing a doctor testify. And it's almost unbelievable that someone would come in with the degrees they have and just say things that are, <laughs> you know, from our view, so ridiculous. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's crazy, Mark. I mean, that, that happens. And I mean, this is why we're doing this podcast is to educate people on really almost like what happens behind closed doors when, you know, like everything that leads up to finishing a case and, and doing all this work on the back end, because I don't think people understand. So the thing is too, so some people looking at it, like Mark, Mark says, well, the doctors, they say it in every case. And then maybe some skeptical people might be like, well, maybe every case is BS. Maybe every, maybe they are liars, malingerers, frauds in most cases. So here's the reality of the situation. When we do this work, like when plaintiffs, attorneys, justice attorneys do cases like this, we do them on contingency. So we don't get paid unless we win the case. And on an auto case, like an auto crash case where someone's been hurt, the cash that has to be put out on that case to bring it to trial can be anywhere from like 15,000 to $50,000 plus in cash. And a lot of time because these experts get paid a lot of money. So the insurance companies fight the really good cases hard in our experience. They're always trying to pay as little as possible. So even, even the good cases are really hard and we're not going to take our our time and and risk our time and all our money on on a bad case. And like I said, the good cases are hard enough as they are. But the other thing is let me try my hand a little bit at at like hosting the podcast or let me just ask a question. So like we we've been at this for maybe 15 20 minutes or so and it's like all doom and gloom. So maybe Mark can talk about well how do we counter this? How do we bring justice to people? How do we deal with these with these experts that say the same thing that are paid, you know, six and seven figures for the pick, you know, the defense attorneys, they pick and pay for the expert. How do we what's the best way to counter that? What have you done? So a couple there's a few things that we do. Number one, you know, in most cases, what we do and there's a case out there right now on the issue, whether you can still do it going forwards. But we send a nurse to the medical examination 
we think that that's really important oftentimes. And the nurse, it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a medical nurse. It's a third party observer that sits in on the examination because a lot of times what will happen is it's just the defense doctor and our client. And it's like we've talked about in the past, it's like sending a sheep to a pack of wolves. These defense doctors just rotate through, you know, case after case. They don't care one bit about this person who a lot of times their future livelihood is is on the line. So what will happen is say it's a shoulder injury, they'll the patient will try and lift their arm up like that, they'll grimace, they can't do it. The defense doctor will write in the report, full range of motion in shoulder, no issues, you know, totally fine, normal examination. Where when we send the nurse, what the nurse typically does is she'll sit there and she'll take notes and she'll accurately observe what happens. So she'll have in her notes, could only raise shoulder this high, complain of pain. And if that's not in the doctor's report, we can use that at the time of trial to cross-examine him. And we find that that's very effective. We find that a lot of times the defense doctor's reports will be more favorable to us uh, than they are a lot of times to, to other firms or they've been in the past. And the theory kind of on our part behind that is because we have that third party there, if this doctor's doing 200 reports a week, he gets to ours and he says, all right, well, they had a person there, whatever. I won't go as hard on this, you know, 199th report. So we think that that's pretty helpful to try and combat these defense doctors. If we do our homework, a lot of times what we've got is we've got transcripts on the doctor because what happens is it's usually not the first time this doctor's testifying in court and someone else has examined him beforehand, gotten testimony about how often he testifies, how often he testifies for the defense, what percentage of his practice is devoted to doing. A lot of times they call them forensic examinations. They're defense medical exams. But to what percentage of his practice is devoted to that? Then how many times like he's he's concluded there's a permanent injury? And in auto cases, that's kind of the key. Like, is there a permanent injury? And a lot of times the defense doctor can't recall a single case where they found that there was a permanent injury. You know, what's funny about this dimple too. So you, you want to hear like, so a lot of this, Hey, let's get some behind the scenes stuff. Cause people see what they see on court TV or whatever it is, or they're maybe limited experience in, in the justice system, but there is a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes. So the, the way this works, like you think, Oh, I have a trial. First of all, a TV trial, when you have a TV trial, the courtroom's filled with people. Okay. In most of these auto cases, there's no one in the courtroom other than the people involved and maybe a couple people observing, if that. Sometimes the next witness that's going to testify is sitting in the courtroom. But in a TV trial, it's like, oh, this is a big thing and this is all over and everyone cares about it. Usually it's not that way. And here's the other thing, you know, like in the TV trial, like, oh, the witnesses know all about the case. They know the parties well. This has been engulfing their lives since this situation has happened and they've been waiting to testify. So you want the behind the scenes part of these critical medical expert witnesses for the defendants. Like Mark said, typically the defense expert will schedule days of the week and they'll see 20 to 30 injured people like plaintiffs in personal injury cases a day. They'll bring them through like it's a mill. By the time it gets to trial, and then, they'll, and then they'll write a report after. But the reports are very much template. And there's procurement companies that procure all these experts for the insurance company. And if you Google it, you'll see them there. And then they provide the expert to the insurance company. And guess who's like providing the report or amending the report? It's the procurement company. 
And we even suspect that in some situations, if the expert report doesn't write what the procurement company wants, which is what the insurance company wants, they will amend the report. And in a lot of times, we suspect the doctor is never going to know anyway, because by the time it gets to trial, he's going to have no idea who this person is that he examined, he or she examined. Like Mark said, they couldn't pick him out of a lineup at all. And all they're doing is basically going off the report and whatever medical records records are there. And you, you want to hear the funniest thing about this whole situation, Dimple? Guess, guess what the defendants, when they get up in front of the jury, what they refer to as the doctor hired by the insurance company that's picked and paid by the insurance company to write a report about the injured plaintiff. Guess what they call these people? Can you I guess? I have no idea. Do they call them God? I don't know. <laughs> they call them independent medical witnesses. They try to say that this doctor that's picked and paid for by the insurance company is independent. And they'll tell the jury, you're going to hear from Dr. So-and-so. And Dr. So-and-so performed an independent medical exam as if, as if like the court uh, uh, picked, the, picked the doctor to give an independent. That's the craziest part about it. So I actually, I wrote an article that was published in the law journal that was entitled, There's No Such Thing as an Independent Medical Examination in, in New Jersey. The way they're doing that, I think that's deceptive, <laughs> period. What, what we've done, what we've done in these cases, so like Mark said, it, it, we don't always send a nurse to the exams, depends on the case and stuff, but often when we send the nurse and, you know, the defense doctor will walk off the stand and like Mark said, the doctor said, yes, they raised the shoulder, no problem, full range of motion. And I actually have some testimony here. Question, and this is my questioning of the nurse that appeared at the exam where the plaintiff the defense doctor testified when he touched the shoulder, he complained of pain all over the shoulder. Did that actually happen at the exam? And the nurse testified, no, it did not. Describe what happened at the exam. Where did he touch the shoulder and what actually happened on that? He touched it right on his deltoid area and that's where it hurt. It wasn't all over. He specifically said the proximal area. <laughs> it's just crazy. And Mark, Mark said it's a game or he referred to it as a game. I don't really necessarily agree or think that's the best thing to call it. It's not really a game. It's, it's like a serious search for the truth. It's a serious attempt to extract justice from a system that in many ways can be inherently unjust. And we're, our job is to try to extract some justice out of it. And it's, it's, it's sad. I mean, it's sad that you would have these doctors get up there and say that. And then the other thing the defense doctors will often do, and they'll say, oh, the plaintiff complained of pain all over, no matter where I touched him. And they'll testify to that. When I did the exam, the plaintiff complained of, complained of pain anywhere I touched him as if they're, oh, that hurts. And oh, that hurts. So I asked the question in this case, and defense doctor also testified that wherever you touched him on the body, he said, oh, that hurts, pain here, pain there. Did that ever happen at the exam? Answer, no, it did not. And did plaintiff ever complain of pain all over his body? That is diffuse pain. Answer, no, he did not. So that's kind of one of the ways that we counter that is to try to get a nurse to the exams, to observe the exams, take notes and record the exams. And Dimple, just one more thing. You can tell we could talk about, it's funny, I think we're supposed to talk about experts in these cases, and we've ended up talking about defense experts. So you can see kind of our, our feelings on it. But it, it's interesting because a lot of times at trial, a big no-no is like in some states, you can say 
ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my client's really hurt, award her, you know, $5 million. New Jersey, you cannot do that. You can't suggest a number to the, to the jury. It's a big no-no, like talking about numbers. But when it comes to expert witnesses, you are allowed to talk about how much they get paid. And that's because it, it goes to their credibility. It's fair for the jury to consider the fact that, hey, Mr. Defense Expert that's coming in here making $800,000 a year saying, you know, the herniated disc is pre-existing, degenerative, not related to the crash. And oh, in fact, there's no herniation. It's just a sprain strain and they got better, excellent recovery. Subjective complaints don't match with the objective evidence that that guy's making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year saying the same thing. So the jury can actually consider finances and, and money in that situation. So the thing is, and I, we might be going a little over time here, but like, I remember the Brady Bunch and I don't know how many people remember the Brady Bunch. You have to be a certain age for that, but that was a TV show. And if you Google it, there's the, <clears throat> there's the scene where the dad, Mr. Brady, he hit someone in a car and the person was in court with, with the big collar around the neck and, uh, and he was clearly faking. It was a big thing. And then Mr. Brady, after he testified, after the plaintiff testified, he threw his, his suit, his, his briefcase down and, and everyone looked back, including the plaintiff who said he couldn't turn his neck. And I swear to this day, that kind of comedy and humor, I swear to this day, that kind of thing haunts trials. And that kind of thing is in people's heads and they think the plaintiffs are, are faking it. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's another part of this. I don't know if you can tell through my voice or my face, if you're seen here, but I'm a little bit young for the Brady Bunch, but I have like a vivid memory from as a kid. And I don't know why the heck this would have stood out or I even would have cared back then, but seeing that exact clip like that, or seeing that exact episode, I didn't watch the Brady Bunch regularly. I probably was like, I don't know, I'm watching TV land or something, but I remember that clearly. I think they like we're backing out of a spot at the grocery store or something. And I remember he drops the briefcase guy turns, but you're right. Like, I feel like there's probably Simpsons episodes about it. Any pop culture thing talks about, Oh, frivolous lawsuit, frivolous, like Seinfeld has the Kramer getting burnt by hot coffee. And I think instead of taking the settlement, he takes the lifetime supply of coffee, but you know, you laugh at it, but it does. It, it kind of permeates into what we do now still. And, and I'm going to give a little bit of a plug. We talk about we send these nurses to the exams. I can tell you that not all law firms do that. We we do it in, in a lot of our cases. We will send a nurse in many, many of the cases. But it's not necessarily a standard thing that's done. So I'm going to give a little plug. I think you have a better chance of winning your case if you send a nurse to the defense medical exam. And, and we usually send one. Yeah, because the boy said before, like it, we get better reports. But Jerry's talked about the you now the defense guy with these fancy degrees who presents really well, gets up there, gives his whole testimony spiels, walking down the jury's, you know, mesmerized. If on the heels of that we have a nurse that we can call up to totally rebut everything he just said, you know, when it's appropriate, when the situation actually warrants it and and you know it's it's accurate, it just totally takes the wind out of the sails from that thing. So it's just really effective to go. I love that because, yeah. you know, when you have, when you're dealing with that, there are people can, they can put on an act, they can put on a show and, you know, to the average person who doesn't know everything, right. They can be fooled by it, but you guys are lawyers, obviously, you know, you, you know, what's going on and you know how to counteract that. And by the way, I am older than Mark's. So I do remember that episode and, and it was funny because yes, in court, you know, turned his head, 
you know, to pick up the drop thing. And it's like busted, totally busted. So that's where all that, you know, comes from. <laughs> but, but I mean, but that was like back in like, I don't know, was the eighties or something. So you can see how in society, this just is a trend it goes on and on. So Jerry kind of gave, and again, it's, it's a funny mix of, we want to be telling people about how the law works or a lot of what kind of we do as, a, as attorneys and not have it be such a plug, but sometimes you can't help it just talking about everything. And so Jerry talked about how we kind of, we send a nurse to these exams a lot of the times. That does not seem to be the industry standard. It doesn't seem like a lot of law firms are doing that. We do think it's important when the case warrants it, you know, that it makes sense to do it. But I, I see that a lot. And Jerry does arbitration sometimes, you know, where he sees a lot of different attorneys and with Zoom, we're not in court as much. So I, I'm not around as many different attorneys as I used to be. And the other day I was in court for a pretrial conference, a conference before a case got going. And I was talking to a defense attorney who I potentially have a trial coming up against. And he was free that week. He was supposed to have a trial. And he said, oh, but the, the plaintiff signed a stip. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And the plaintiff's attorney in that case had signed a stipulation of dismissal for his case rather than take the case to trial. And I was like, how deep into the litigation? They'd litigated the case for years. He'd spent you know, time, money, gotten an expert. And rather than try the case, he voluntarily dismissed it. I think I would have to sprint out the door if I ever called Jerry and told him that. <laughs> I did that unless I had some darn, darn good reason. And um, and then I'd I'd sprint out behind him and tackle him, and then we'd be, yeah. we'd be rolling in the dirt if he did that. Yeah. It's something that I can't e that I can't even fathom, and I know it's not really related to experts. I could tie it back in and say when the case does go to trial, again we we'll do our homework, we'll make sure we have whatever we need on on the expert. But the idea of getting a case at the doorstep of trial and then just saying, "Oh, we're we're just going to get rid of it," that's that's not how that's not how we litigate. So from little things, we don't think it's little, but like sending a nurse to a defense medical exam to not saying, okay, I give up on the eve of eve of trial. I just think I, that's how we litigate and it's important. So Mark, thank you for sharing that. You know, I do have a question. So do you do any additional research to, to really just expose the experts to have more data and information to go off of? Yeah. A lot of times I think I, I talked about, I don't know if I'd call them frequent flyers, but a lot of times we've dealt with many of the defense experts in the past. So I usually start by looking in our system at old cases, maybe cases I've had or someone else in the firm has had to see if we have any transcripts from that doctor or reports from that doctor where they had said the same thing. And a lot of times when transcript, either they've testified at trial or they've been deposed. And when a deposition is taken, a transcript's written up, the doctor's placed under oath. And a lot of times there's transcripts either in our system or if we if we don't have transcripts, we, we can kind of go into a, a network with other attorneys and potentially see if they have transcripts. So trying to find statements that the doctors made under oath I, is usually a lot of a big part of the homework that I would do before I'm going to trial against a defense expert. Because again, the things we talked about before, you know, how much they're paid, how frequently they testify for the defense. I mean, we've had cases where the guy's been in the courthouse you know, the same day for two different cases, just going down the hall, likely saying the exact same thing. So pulling transcripts, pulling old reports, there's something called jury verdict research. It's like when you go and research case law through a system, 
they have a collection of cases where it kind of gives a value range of what the case might be worth. A lot of times I think of it as like a, a Google review. You're not going to go and put a case in jury verdict research unless you had a really good experience or a really bad experience. So a lot of times it can be somewhere in between but or give you an accurate view. But that jury verdict research sometimes will list the defense experts as well and give you a little blurb about what the case was about. And almost all the time we would find in those jury verdict research kind of statements the same blurb that Dr. X said the injuries were pre-existing and degenerative. And then, you know, two years later, Dr. X said pre-existing degenerative. And we can use that to cross the doctor and say, doctor, do you recall the Smith case? And he says, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm sure I testified in it. Doctor, do you recall in that case, your testimony was that the injury was pre-existing and degenerative? I, I don't doubt that that was my testimony. You know, did you know there that the plaintiff got a $5.2 million verdict? Objection, listen, you know, but that, it's kind of that transcripts, reports, jury verdict research. Yeah, the th the thing it can be. So, for example, if you get a the experts' reports or his testimony in prior cases, they'll say things. For example, like so, it, let's say in in the case that he's testifying in today for, he says the plaintiff never went to the emergency room after the crash, and therefore we know he wasn't injured because he didn't go to the emergency room after the crash. And then if you get a bunch of his prior reports, you'll find that even when the plaintiff goes to the emergency room after the crash, they'll still say, well, that's not a significant factor to me. So that's kind of like one way you can expose them. And then there's other examples that we know of where like one, for example, the person who was being examined by the defense doctor recorded the whole exam and it lasted about 90 seconds. And then at trial, the expert testified that the exam took 20 minutes. And then you play the thing and it's only 90 seconds. And you, <laughs> these are different ways that the research and stuff can, can expose these doctors. But the money thing is really important because in a lot of ways, it's like the doctor's on his own island. So you'll have the, the injured person will be going on for, say, four years. And they'll go to dozens of medical exams. They'll have surgeries. They'll be treated by a half dozen doctors and radiologists and everything. And all those doctors will say, yes, they're injured. Yes, it's from this. And, you know, the radiologist will say, yes, that's a real injury, et cetera, et cetera. So then the only person in the case or in the trial is this insurance defense medical exam doctor. And they're the only one that's saying they're not injured. They're not seriously injured. It's not related to the crash. So it's kind of like they're on their own island and the island is being funded by the insurance company. And therefore, they have to say what the insurance company wants them to say because they don't want to be kicked off the island. And and so they're like on their own little private island. And and so I had I had one particular case very hard. It was a very difficult case. Another law firm had it and didn't think they could do much. So they kind of cut the plaintiff loose. And we took the case, you know, tried the case. And we had this defense doctor was on the stand and we cross examined him cross examined. Him. So like, you know. The witness goes up and then the attorney that wants the testimony from the witness will call them and ask them questions. That's called direct exam. And then the adverse attorney can ask them other questions to try to show that they're not being truthful or they're not credible. That's called cross-examination. So often on cross-examination, that's when we'll bring this stuff out, including the money thing. And in one particular case, this, this expert who was testifying held stock in the medical doctor procurement company, he actually founded this company that 
held itself out as servicing the insurance industry. And I crossed him on that at trial. And, and he's, he's like, oh, I sold that stock in that company years ago. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, I'm like, wait a minute. And I checked as of today, the stock you had X shares, it's worth, and I did the math in front of the jury, $23 million. He, he legit had stock in 23, he had $23 million worth of stock in the company that procured the, the medical exam, the defense medical exam. And then I said, isn't that true? He's like, well, I don't know what it is. And he goes, I sold that stock years ago. I got rid of that stock years ago. And I had the official statement from the FEC about him having sold that stock. Dimple, guess who he sold the stock to? Well, I mean, someone really famous. He sold it to his wife. Oh, sneaky. So he's up in the stand telling this jury that he doesn't have any, any, any stake in this stock of this company that arranged the exam in this case because he sold it. But I knew and crossed him that he sold it. So then after I was done the examination, the defense lawyer jumped up and he goes, doctor, isn't it true that the injury is not severe? Yes, that's true. Is it isn't it true that the injury is not related to this crash? Yes, that's true. And I said, judge, I have one more question. Can I please ask? All right, make it quick, Mr. Clark. I said, doctor, you, you said the injury is not from the crash and that's not serious, right? Yes, that's what I say. Well, I said, you have 23 million reasons to say that, don't you? And, and then, you know, the big objection, sustained, don't answer that. And the doctor storms off the stand and says, I won't lower myself. <laughs> so, so this is the kind of this. <laughs> so on the one hand, you know, Mark talked about that there are some attorneys, rather than put up the tens of thousands of dollars it costs to take these cases to trial, they'll just dismiss the case and move on to the next case, which again, Mark and I would be rolling in the dirt if that happened at this office. And then on the other hand, some attorneys will do the research, the investigation, the digging and take the risk. We don't win all our cases. You know, we've tried a lot of cases and we've won a lot of cases and got some awesome, awesome results, but we also lose cases uh, from time to time as well. If you're a trial attorney and haven't lost any cases, then you haven't tried many cases because it's very difficult, but it is important to get a lawyer that is not afraid to try cases because see, they keep tabs on all the lawyers, the insurance company. And if the lawyer takes a dismissal, dismisses a case instead of taking the risk of bringing it to trial, what do you think Dimple, the insurance company is going to do on the next case that that same lawyer has? How do you think they're going to approach that case? They're going to make the same judgment and they're going to have this pre like mentality of like what they were thinking based on past experience and evidence, they're going to yeah. do the same thing. And they're not going to pay money on the case. They're not going to settle the case for a lot of money. So it's important to get lawyers that actually try cases and have experience in this regard. And, and it also helps if they have good results. So that was such a great share, Jerry. I think, I mean, that example right there, and that's literally what, you know, happens behind the closed doors of the courtroom and, you know, with witnesses and, and, and all of that. But it's so important to know, like, the right people to bring in, the right witnesses, the right questions to ask. So thank you for sharing that. And Mark, what are your thoughts on all this? I agree. I probably just have one more thing to add too, but I think we take for granted that, you know, we go, we do go do our homework, depending on, you know, who the defense expert is going out, tracking down transcripts, doing things like Jerry did in that case, you know, going to the FEC or, you know, making sure that he had that information. Cause that's huge. That, that factors big time into a case. 
but like the attorneys who will sign the step of dismissal or like, you know, the attorney who might not send a nurse to the exam, you know, I don't automatically just want to conclude that all attorneys go out and do their homework on these defense doctors before crossing them. You know, they might just say, all right, who do I got today? And go up there and try and pick at some stuff. But, you know, we like to kind of have as much ammunition, like information's power and all that. So we try and have as much as we can before we go in. And I've kind of been thinking through this too, and this is more just a global big picture thing, but, and it is related to a case. I think it was, what was it? Was it like Citizens United or something? It was a Supreme Court case that dealt with like campaign financing. And it may have been one of the last cases I had to look at in law school. But the, my understanding, what I recall about it was it was a First Amendment, a First Amendment case that concluded that money essentially is speech. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what a lot of this is, like these doctors that are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. That's speech. That's the defense firms telling them, hey, write us a good report. And then what we hope the ultimate kind of speech is, is the jury saying, hey, we don't believe that guy. We believe your client. Here's money because that's them saying, here's a just verdict. Here's here's fairness. So the whole time when we were talking about all this, I kind of had having in the back of my head that, you know, money is speech. And it's like in life, if you value someone's services, you're you're willing to pay for it. If you really like going to this one pizza place, you don't mind spending $20 for their pizza or whatever it is. Like, and that's a lot of times what kind of makes this whole thing go around. Yeah. And if there's any potential jurors listening here and you don't like, and you find this a trial and you don't like it, you can speak to by awarding money. Wait, 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 rewind, Jerry. What can they do? What can the jury do? Well, so Mark made a great point about how in America, based on our Supreme Court, they say money is speech, right? So jurors at trial, they don't talk out, out, out of their mouth, but what they can do is they can award money. So if a juror doesn't like what they hear and they don't like what they're seeing, that because the thing is, if, if a plaintiff is a liar, a cheat and a fraud, they should be thrown out of the courtroom with nothing. It should absolutely happen. But if they are being called a liar, cheat, and a fraud, just because the insurance company wants to pull the wool over people's eyes and get away with paying out claims, then how dare they? And the juror, the jury can speak by awarding money in those cases, by awarding the full compensation. The jury can speak that way. I love that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. So anything else that either of you would like to share about this topic before we wrap up? I think that's thorough enough. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you so much. We will see you guys next time. Make sure you share this out with your friends. And there you have it, folks. Another episode of Jersey Justice Podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, it's time to hit that subscribe button on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review online. Share this podcast with your friends and become their legal hero. Dive into more episodes at jerseyjusticepodcast.com or clarklawnj.com and check out our show notes for more information. If you're navigating legal issues and need a guiding light, we're just a phone call away. Call us at 1-877-841-8855. Again, 1-877-841-8855. Until next time, Jersey Justice Warriors, stay empowered and informed.